6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 3 through 10. Well, we're reviewing, exploring the book of Psalms. It's the last of our series. We've been through the whole Bible. We won't stop. We'll go back and repair some of the damage that we've done to some of the other books of the Bible, but we will have the Bible complete when we complete the book of Psalms. But this study is a very different one for us because generally what we try to do is provide an expositional review of the books that we're studying. We get into the exegetical issue. You start with exegesis, that is what does the translate, what does the original language really say? And then from there you go to the exposition. Okay, what does it mean? And most of our materials are expositional, verse by verse, in the hopes of providing a basis of understanding. Book of Psalms is a very different kind of book. It's not the only part of the Bible that's devotional, obviously, but it's primarily a devotional book. It's a hymnal. And uh, so we will go through and try to highlight here and there uh, some exegetical potholes, if there some exist. We'll exposit where we think it's really essential or useful. But I want to emphasize right up front, this is a different kind of experience. This is an experience that needs to be devotional. This is a book that you study with your heart, not your mind in the usual sense. Not that you have to sacrifice either. Um, in any case, we're going to address Psalms 3 to, through 10 tonight. And just remind you that here we have poetry, although it's laced with very strong theology. It is primarily poetry. The Hebrew term, Tehillim, is uh, praises, is what it means. And 55 of the 150 are addressed, literally, to the chief musician. These were, in, these were originally designed to be sung in the, with the accompaniment of various instruments and so forth. In the Greek, uh, a poem to be sung in stringed instrument is Samoe, and that's why the word Psalm, our English name for this book, comes from really the Greek, if you will. Now, most poetry is designed in, our, in the Western world on phonemes, phonetic design. Two kinds of parallelism, rhyme, of course, and also rhythm. Rhyme and meter, if you will, are, really constitute the structure of Western poetry, not so the Hebrew poetry. It's based on conceptual design, and the parallelism in the poetry of uh, Israel was based on the parallelism of ideas, not sounds. And there were three kinds of parallelism, at least. Comparative, that's to illuminate. Contrastive, where the second line tends to be antithetical to the first. And, and completive, where the second line completes the thought introduced in the first. So there's different structures. And I want to highlight that so you're aware of it, then encourage you to forget it. I'll explain what I mean in a minute. We'll encounter a strange word throughout the Psalms called Selah. 
And that's, that either means to lift up or to pause. Many assume or presume that it's a musical term. And there are musical terms scattered throughout the Psalms. But there are a number of scholars that have analyzed this rather convincingly to suggest that the Selah is a pause, not for sound or for music, but to connect ideas. It actually may be both, of course. One of the strange aspects of the study is really reliable background on ancient Jewish music is, is uh, lacking. A lot of conjectures, some interesting books being written, but the truth of the matter is we really know surprisingly little about the music of ancient Israel. But in this parallelism, we have synonymous parallelism. That's where the second line restates the first. The Lord who shall, who shall abide in thy temple, who shall dwell in thy holy hill. So it just restates a different expression of the same thing. That's pretty comfortable. Another form of parallelism is antithetic parallelism. Contrast, just the opposite. The lines are in contrast to each other. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. There's a contrast there, obviously. Often we learn a concept more clearly by knowing what its opposite is. What's the opposite of love? No, not hate, it's fear. But good question, that's a, and I'm glad you said it, because that's, that's a very common conception, strangely enough. And, and that isn't a complete, from there you can build a whole issue. But anyway, there's also thin, what they call synthetic parallelism, where each successive line expands the previous one. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Each one amplifies the previous one. That's the example of what they call synthetic parallelism. There are lots of different sources, 73 are David's, and you can easily figure out which one is the oldest psalm in the book, because one of them was written by guess who? Moses himself. Okay. Now, many people organize, through the years, have organized the psalms as a Torah or Pentateuch, organizing the 150 psalms into five books, as they call them. First book is they call the Genesis book, and they would argue that they, the first 41 psalms seem to be focused on man. The second book would be the Exodus book, some people call it, focused on deliverance. Leviticus, focusing on the sanctuary. Numbers, focus on unrest or the wandering, suggestive of the 38 years in the wilderness and so on. And Deuteronomy, the word of the Lord. Now those are just, those are just categories that a scholar would make. I want to let you know of them. I tend to be underwhelmed by them because I keep finding exceptions. Uh, the first, we're in the Genesis section by that reckoning, and uh, where man presumably is in view, in a state of blessedness, then his fall and his recovery. The first psalm does deal with the perfect man and fulfilled by the last Adam. Second psalm, one could argue, is rebellious man, certainly in the collective sense. Psalm three, perfect man rejected. Psalm four would be argued as a conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent. Psalm 5, the perfect man in the midst of his enemies, and uh, on it goes. You can go right through the whole list here, and uh, I want you to be aware of them just for completeness of perspective, and yet um, I'm going to urge you to take those notes and then shelve them. <laughs> and uh, Christ in the midst of his people, thank you. Okay, here's the caveat that having said all that, I want to throw out a caveat. 
In the Bible, they make a distinction between clean and unclean animals. And I'm going to urge you to take the role of the clean animal. What? And, and by the way, I like to how many of each animal did Noah take into the ark? Beg your pardon? Good, I've got, I've got a lot of the right answers here. Right, not two. Seven of the clean, two of the unclean. Now the question that when you, the next question that comes out of that, how did Noah know? Those definitions are in Genesis 6. Those, the definitions show up in Leviticus. They weren't ordained in the days of Israel. They foreshadowed Israel by over a thousand years. They were codified in the Levitical law. But those distinctions apparently were prevalent in Genesis 6. The Sabbath, Shabbat, was ordained in Genesis 1. Actually, well, Genesis 2. Anyway, getting back to this, chewing the cud was one of the distinctives of a clean animal. And I don't think this is just a pun or an accident. I think as Jacob Prash has written several books arguing that the difference of an animal being clean or unclean is not whether or not it's a bottom feeder or all these biological categories. The animals that are clean are all animals in the scripture that are used as an idiom of the Messiah. The animals that are unclean are used idiomatically as other, other than that, and so forth. So the lion is idiom of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I don't think the lions chew their cuts, okay? And I could go on. But the, it's an interesting hypothesis anyway. But the real point I'm getting at is uh, we're, I'm going to suggest are instructed to chew the cut. Psalms are not designed to just be read. They're not really designed to be exposited in the scholastic sense. They're designed to be meditated upon. You probably won't really appreciate any one of the Psalms until you've read it maybe 50 or 60 times. I'm not exaggerating only a little bit. You see... The, chewing the cud was the key to clean sacrifices. And if we're going to be a sacrifice before the Lord, we should be digesting, meditating on his word. That's really where I'm headed. Let's avoid analysis paralysis. As a guy who specially is information sciences, I will have a tendency in many contexts to overanalyze, bring out things that you really didn't want to know. We'll try to avoid that here. Because these technical categories and categorizations and what have you can blindfold our souls to the real message. And so I'm going to suggest that what we want to indulge in is prayerful absorption, not intellectual dissection. There is a place for that. If you're going to get an eschatology, you'll quickly learn it's very essential to be very precise You'll just, Jesus himself highlights that the word of God will often hang on a yacht or a tittle. And some of his most profound arguments with the legalists of that day, in Matthew 22, hang on a yod in the, 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 uh, uh, the possessive of my Lord and so on. Anyway, but uh, in this case, it, the, the, our dimension that we're seeking is a little different. We want the, each psalm to be, for each of us, a gateway to his presence. So, okay. Um, I could go on and on, but we'll leave the other introductory remarks that were in the first session um, to your notes. Let, we picked up the first two psalms 
We introduced Psalms more thoroughly the previous session, and we took the first Psalm, two men, two ways, and two destinies. And then we jumped right into what's one of the most profound Psalms of the package, Psalm 2, which was a discussion among the Trinity itself. And a fascinating, fascinating piece of work. And if you weren't there last time, I encourage you when you get a chance to take Psalm 2 and diagram it and figure out who's speaking to whom. It's a great exercise. Now, there are alternative interpretations of each of the Psalms, and we're going to encounter one of these issues right here in Psalm 3. We're going to, take, we're going to pick up from Psalm 3 and on. There is the primary interpretation. These Psalms, most of them, were written by David, and they were written as a result of some experience of his. Some favorable, some unfavorable, all different kinds. And he was a poet and a songwriter, and he wrote these. In fact, probably wrote many more than are even embodied here, but he was, he was not only a great warrior and a, a very faithful servant despite his stumblings, but his personal experiences, including his stumblings, are embodied in the passion uh, in his uh, psalm. So it's a, each, that's the, to understand the psalm, we'll, we'll try where we can to draw some inferences as to what experience probably led him to that particular psalm. In any case, if that was all there was, that would be very provincial, very parochial. No, each psalm also has a direct application to the godly remnant of the nation Israel. And many of them specifically for the comfort of the godly remnant during the great tribulation, which is yet to come. Yes, the Holocaust was grim, the one that we all know of in Nazi Germany. There's one coming that'll be even more severe that Jesus himself labels as the great tribulation. And many of these may have direct application to that very, very dark time that is on the horizon. But most of us are interested in the third application, the more general application to God's people everywhere at any time in the history. Almost all of these psalms will impact every one of us at one time or another. And one of the great gifts, if we can so organize it, is to be able to get at the ones we need when we need them. And I encourage you to figure out how to do that. And uh, if you look at the psalms from this point of view, the third point of view, they'll all become more meaningful to every one of us. Some historical background before we get into Psalm 3. In fact, it's going to impact Psalm 3, 4, and 5. We believe that the historical background for those psalms of David occurred from the background in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. And I won't take the time tonight to go through it verse by verse, although I was tempted to. I figure that's something you can do at your leisure. I'll summarize it. This psalm came out of the personal experience of David. It tells us what went on in his heart when he had to flee from Jerusalem when his own son, Absalom, rebelled against him. He was king, but Absalom was out to unseat him. In fact, even kill him. His own son. Can you imagine? David became an outcast and a fugitive from his own city, Jerusalem. He's the king. And Jerusalem was called the city of David. He'd been driven from the people he'd ruled. Can you imagine what was going on in his heart? Set aside the politics and those details. Can you imagine how he felt, what he was going through? Absalom, his own son, was in rebellion against him and seeking his life. His intention was to actually put his father to death. Can you imagine that? As he fled, the enemy was on the sidelines cursing him. And Absalom was able to get a lot of people. He's a very colorful guy, very articulate, making all kinds of promises he couldn't possibly keep. 
Abishai, one of David's loyals, said, let me run a spear through him. David said, oh, no. David would not, let, would not let harm come to Absalom. Can you imagine that? The prophet Nathan told David that God would punish him for his sins, and his sins were many, adultery and murder. God forgave him, but that doesn't relieve the consequences of those. I'm reminded of a father. Whenever his son did something wrong, he drove a nail into the dining room table. When the son repented, he forgave him and pulled the nail out. But those holes were still there to remind him of the past. Of course, God does better than that, right? Your sins I will remember no more. Second Samuel 12, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and on. There's a very detailed indictment presented by Nathan to David that he was going to have trouble and that trouble would be in his own house. And boy, did he have family problems. Started, of course, with the death of the first son. The, the one that, the, the first son of Bathsheba died. The rape of his daughter Tamar. And the slaying of his sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, before it was all over. He would lose three of them slain. So he had family problems. Now, 2 Samuel 15 says the enemies, David's enemies increased from all, all sides. The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. Absalom was successful at fermenting this revolt. He was attractive, clever, politician, and uh, able to, you know, make a sale. And, of course, there are many others that rose up against David. And, of course, 2 Samuel uh, 15 through 18 details all that. So David actually went out of Jerusalem barefoot, weeping, passing over the Kedron Valley, and it looked as if there was no help for him at all. And that's the context of these psalms that are here recorded. Psalm 3. I think uh, 4 and 5 are, I think, from born of the same events. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom's son. This one is labeled for us to point us in the right place. David says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. Pretty dark times for him. Many, not just Absalom. And many are saying there's no help for him. Where does he look for help? There apparently none except God himself. And the word Selah occurs there, which as I say, some people think it's a musical term, perhaps, could be. Others believe that's a, that's, that is a signal to stop and digest what's been said so far. It's used 71 times in the Psalms, and it's three times in Habakkuk 3, which is a, a psalm in the book of Habakkuk that is worthy of some study. We'll look at that later. Now, the word psalm here happens to be the word mizmor, which actually means to pluck the strings. So again, this was not just a poem. It was intended to be sung and accompanied with a stringed instrument, interestingly enough. The word help here, interestingly enough, is the word Yeshua, which means help, salvation, and as a proper name, is the name of whom? Jesus Christ. He's Yeshua. Yehoshua is also the name of Joshua, by the way. But anyway, okay. That's the Hebrew lesson for the day. All right. And the word Selah means to lift up or to be silent. 
And there's two, two basic schools of thought on that that I've just mentioned, okay. And uh, so, but I, I tend to lean, I think E.W. Bullinger makes the most thorough argument here to argue, support the idea that it's re, to connect subject matter, not music. It connects the end of one strophe with the beginning of the next. It's the connecting of two subjects together. It's sometimes synthetic, sometimes antithetic. He argues that it's concerned with truth, not with tunes. But uh, that's a view you can try on yourself. Now, with that hopeless opening, David then says, But thou, O Lord, art a, sh art a shield for me. The word is magan. And magan David, the, sixth, the famous six-pointed star of Israel, is called the shield of David. It actually derived from some earlier history that's not relevant to our discussion here, but the word magan anyway is the word shield here. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. So when it's really dark, everybody's against him. In fact, not only are they against him, they regard his situation as hopeless. David is confident of his real help. Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. My glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Say it again. God would indeed lift up his head and restore his throne. He knew he would because that's what was prophesied in, in uh, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. And he was relying on that covenant. You know, that's a very, very interesting thing we should not overlook. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God goes out of his way to present himself as one who keeps his promises. He's a God that delights in making and keeping his promises. Some of his commitments would seem to put him in a very tight box. The ruler of the universe allows himself to be cornered into a tight box of his commitments, and he keeps them. That's a total contrast to the presentation of Allah, of Islam, who is presented as a capricious uh, one who can do anything he wants. Read that as untrustworthy. The very presentation of the characteristics or attributes of Allah are absolutely opposite from the attributes of the God of Avram, Isaac, and Yaakov. Okay, he trusted God's promise, the key thought here in 2 Samuel 7. That's the source of the Davidic covenant. It's very, very crucial. And it too, of course, is being challenged by the world today. And God, by the way, in case you've forgotten, is still on the throne. We need to, it's glib to, it's glib to say that here in a Bible study like this, but it's quite another to grab onto that when you're going through a dark times, when everybody's turning against you, when there doesn't seem to be any hope. That's the time to remind yourself that God is on the throne. Put a tab on Romans 8.28 and just check to make sure it's still there. I check it about once a day sometimes. <laughs> David continues, I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I awaked. This is a morning psalm. He's had a good night's sleep. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. That's a lot. How many people are gathered against you right now? I suspect it's less than ten thousand. Morning psalm. Psalm 4 will be an evening psalm on the same events. Psalm 3 is a morning psalm. 
And Psalm 5 is also on this, probably on the same subject, by the way. But the key idea here is that God works on our behalf even when we're asleep. I love Psalm 121 when we get there. It talks about Israel. He that keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Everybody's worried about Israel, with good reason on the one hand, and yet we don't need to not worry. Who's watching out for Israel? God is. Who's watching out for America? These days I'm not so sure. Mornings are special. Abraham worshiped the morning. Moses worshiped in the morning. Joshua worshiped in the morning. Samuel worshiped in the morning. Job worshiped in the morning. Our Lord himself, Mark 1.35. You can look, check these verses out, but I don't think if you really want to challenge those views, I don't think, I'm not suggesting they worshiped only in the morning. But there is something you might remember. When do you feed the sheep? In the morning. And we are his sheep. That we should feed ourselves in the morning when it's fresh. His mercies are fresh. There's something unspoiled about the morning. I guess I, for reasons that I have no idea, I have all my life been an early riser. I wake up very early. And those few hours before breakfast are the most precious time of the day. Many days, what I don't get done by breakfast, I don't get done. Phone starts ringing, there are appointments, there's issues, there's who knows. But um, those precious, precious morning hours. Um, now, some of us, you know, stay up late to make up for it, you know. You know, it's important to get a good night's sleep, too. So here is David in the morning. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. That's a right cross or left hook. What I suspect is a right cross. Anyway, thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah again. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music